All right, let's pray, and then we'll get into the word. Uh, Father in heaven, the almighty, the God who holds everything in the span of his hand. Lord, we worship you tonight. And we thank you, Lord, that we get to give back to you what you have first given to us. And Lord, we just ask that uh, you would accept our offering as a sweet-smelling aroma of grace to your throne room. And Lord, we just ask that you give us wisdom to use these resources, Lord, time, treasure, and talent, um, to minister to those who may be in need, to continue to advance your kingdom here on earth, and of course, to spread the most precious, meaningful, impactful message. That is the gospel, the good news, that Christ has come to seek and save the lost. In Jesus' holy name we pray. And the saints said, amen. amen, amen. All right, open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. All right, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. There you go, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Joel. okay? Book of Jonah, chapter one. Before we get into it, let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for this word uh, that is about to go forth. Holy Spirit, we pray that it would not be by might nor by power, but by your spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. And Lord, we pray that your word would serve as rain and snow that comes down from above and accomplishes everything that you have set it out to do and does not return void. I do pray, Holy Spirit, would not be my words, but it will be your words because your words, they are truth. They are life, and they are spirit. And men shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of your mouth. So, Lord, have your way. Give us the ears to hear. In Jesus' holy name we pray. And the saints said, amen, amen. amen. So, Jonah chapter 1. So, it's been said that legalism is separating the law of God from the person of God. So, since God's law reflects himself, in order for us to accurately and appropriately relate to him, one must never, ever separate his person from his law. When such an action is done, a self-righteous, prideful, exhausting, fruitless religion is born. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the book of Jonah. Today we'll be in chapter one. Jonah is one of the minor prophets, minor because of size, not because of significance. His name means dove. A prophet's job, as you guys know, was to speak to God on the behalf of the people and speak to the people on behalf of God. All throughout scriptures, we see that God has desired to both speak and dwell among his people. For his people to know him personally, passionately, and powerfully, and to also go about making him known through all the nations in the world. In fact, if we were to sum up the entire Bible in one phrase, it would be the kingdom of God and how you can lovingly enter into it. Well, some of you say, what about love? What about Jesus? All those are true too. Very much so. But the kingdom of God is actually God's people in God's place under God's authority. You guys know Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God more than anything else in his ministry. Now, when we hear the name Jonah, most of us who grew up in Sunday school or have been around church for a while, we immediately think, oh, we 
know that story. <laughs> Such a familiar story for us and even American culture. That's that guy who tried to run from God and then got swallowed by the big fish, which led to him being spit out and obeying God later. Ah, I remember that. And then Jonah tends also to be a reference for when someone is evidently called by God into the ministry and is doing any and every but that which God called them to do. And we say, oh, we know God called you to preach, right? Well, that was kind of my story. My entire life I was told, Joshua, you're going to be a preacher. You, you, my entire life since I was a little kid, you're going to be a preacher. And to be honest, I want to know part of it. That wasn't for me. I'm good. No thanks. I did indeed end up running, but as you know, history tells us now, my running was in vain. Amen. Well, saints, that's the story of Jonah. We can close up our Bibles and go home. Not. Saints, we can all relate to that, but that's not actually what the story is really about. The story of Jonah isn't, Jonah isn't really about the big fish mentioned only four times. The story of Jonah isn't even about that great city, Nineveh, and how those wicked people needed to repent. They're only mentioned nine times. Surprisingly, and contrary to popular belief, the story of Jonah isn't even really about the prophet who ran from God, Jonah, who's mentioned 18 times. The story of Jonah is about God's radical love for sinners and how he desires to use flawed, imperfect, wicked people like you and like me and like Jonah to get his will done. God himself, saints, is mentioned 38 times in these four chapters alone. It's about him. It's about the gospel, the good news that Christ has come to seek and save the lost. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord, because you and I were the lost. If we take God out of the book of Jonah, it makes no sense. It's useless. It's powerless. May we not forget that God desires that none should perish. No, not one. Amen. So many would say that Jonah isn't a real story or simply a folklore. How can a whale swallow a guy and then he comes out, right? There's actually no evidence for that. The evidence that we have is in scripture in 2 Kings 14.25. It identifies Jonah as a real person, a Jewish prophet from Gath, Hefer, which is actually, north, uh, is actually north of Nazareth in Galilee. He ministered to the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam II. The only other prophecy we have from Jonah is from 2 Kings, where he predicted the extension of Israel's borders, which kept them from being blotted out as a nation. So there's not much said about the prophet Jonah. But during that time when Jonah was prophesying, Israel as a nation was in spiritual decay as they rapidly moved away from God into idolatry. Israel? Idolatry? No way. Those of us who read the Bible and have lived our own lives know we're all prone to that. Saints, on top of that, our Lord Jesus Christ considered Jonah to be a historical and real person and even pointed 
to Jonah as a type or a sign of his own death, burial, and resurrection. Where is that, Pastor Cameron? Thank you for asking. Note takers, Matthew 12, 40 through 42 says this. Red letters, actually. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. That's King Jesus, saints. Amen? That's Jesus speaking of Jonah. So our Lord Jesus considered Jonah to be a real person, a real story, real truth, not folklore, not Aesop fables, but actually a real story that happened. And so you and I can consider it the same. Jonah was a contemporary of Hosea and Amos, who both courageously denounced wickedness of the rulers, priests, and the people. The book of Jonah is very unique in the sense that most of the prophets are contained with the words of the prophets, and mainly concerning Israel, except for the few that did prophesy to other nations. Jonah actually was the only prophet in the entire Old Testament that was actually sent out to a Gentile nation, not just prophesying against a Gentile nation, but he was actually sent out to a Gentile nation. So for those of you who have read scripture, that simply is not God's way of operating. He would not send his prophets out to other nations. They would prophesy to the nation of Israel and about other nations, but he would not send them out. Why? Because the program in the Old Testament was Israel was the rescue group. And everyone was supposed to be coming to Israel because they were supposed to be a light to the other nations. And so you can imagine Jonah being sent out. He's like, well, I don't know about that. That doesn't really sound like God. And that doesn't really sound like something I want to do personally. But why? Jonah was commissioned to this pagan, rebellious nation outside of the norm. This just wasn't God's way of doing things. Why would God do that? Well, Paul tells us in Romans that God is not just the God of the Jews, but he's also the God of the Gentiles. Saints, God is a global God. He is not just strictly concerned with one nation. In fact, if we read scriptures in Genesis 12, it says that they were to be a blessing to all the nations, eventually pointing to the Great Commission, saints. Go therefore out and make disciples of all nations, people groups, right? God's concern is for all of mankind. Amen? The book is four chapters long. Chapters one is the disobedience of the prophet. Chapter two is the discipline and deliverance of the prophet. Chapter three is the declaration of the message of God through the prophet. And chapter four, unfortunately, is the displeasure of the prophet. Saints, Jonah was mad at God for loving his enemies. Jonah had a problem with God because he could not reconcile divine judgment and divine mercy. 
How can God both be just and merciful? He could not wrap his head around that. We're going to go into the text and we're going to find out why. So let's open up our Bibles. If you don't have them open already, you should. Jonah chapter 1. I tell the message, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Actually, I meant five symptoms, but I put six on there, so that shows you I'm fallible again. Should be five symptoms of a hardened and callous heart. Point number one, you rebel against God's word and command for the Great Commission. Do you guys know what the Great Commission is? Okay, yes, some of us do. The Great Commission is actually when Jesus was going to ascend into heaven to his father. He gave the disciples a Great Commission, and he made a very important statement. He said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And he commissions the disciples and says to them, go therefore out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all things that I have taught you. That was Jonah's program, saints, to go therefore out and shine the light of Christ and bring all people to glory. You can't do that if you don't love all people. Oh, you can't do that if you think God only loves a particular people, right? So here's what the text says. Verse one, here's what it says. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. The word of the Lord. Immediately the book starts with God speaking directly to Jonah. What we gather from that is that Jonah had a personal relationship with God. Since God doesn't just speak to you if you don't know him, okay? God doesn't speak to you if you don't spend time with him. This is a two-way street, right? God desires to have a relationship with us at any moment, at any time, but guess what? Guess who's in control of the intimacy? The Bible says we are. Why? Because he's always ready, always willing, always desiring it to where he says, if you draw near unto me, I will draw near unto you. And so the word of the Lord comes to Jonah because Jonah has a personal relationship with him. God speaks directly to the prophet and gives him two simple commands. No, 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 not something to do. No way. Saints, God was faithful to reveal what he was doing through his messengers, the prophets. So for those of you who take notes, in Amos chapter three, verse seven, it tells us this, that surely God does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to the servant, his servants, the prophets. So remember, prophecy is simply foretelling of a future event. Now, why would God say that in advance? Because he wants you to prepare, saints. Prophecy is to prepare you. And it's a sign of God's mercy, right? God doesn't just immediately strike you down. Why? Because his character says he delights in showing mercy and mercy triumphs over judgment. See, saints, some of us have this idea of God that he can't wait to smite us when we sin, right? And then other of us have this idea of God that he'll never smite me when I sin, right? And so some of us are just on two far spectrums of who and what God is. Now, God is in the middle. Unless you make him on that end, he'll never be on that end, okay? And so saints, we have to understand the character of God, that he is the same today 
yesterday, and forever. And so this is God's mercy preparing us. So what does he tell Jonah? Real simple. Go to Nineveh. Wait, wait, you mean don't, just don't. So hold on, wait. Don't talk about Nineveh? Don't, don't say something to Nineveh? You're telling me to go to Nineveh? Okay, that's one problem. And then cry out against it. Real simple, right? Saints, Jonah had already had a prophetic office because he already prophesied in 2 Kings. So some of us think, well, Jonah got his first command and he, you know, he just dropped the ball, right? He choked. It was his first moment. No, actually it wasn't. He already had a prophetic ministry, but it was to Israel, right? It, it was to his own people in his own town, right? That's a little bit easier than going out to a pagan nation, which we'll talk more about, that is actually your enemy and is on the rise to take over. Well, Nineveh, actually 500 miles away, and was built by the anti-God Nimrod leader from Genesis 10. So a long journey, but what's the main problem? Until then, again, prophets had only been sent to God's people. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, all pronounced few prophetic oracles addressed to pagan nations, but they were never personally sent out to nations to preach. Nineveh, Israel's enemies. Here's a little bit about Nineveh. It's going to be pretty detailed, okay? This is so you can get context. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. They were one of the cruelest, most violent empires of ancient times. Assyrian kings often recorded the results of their military victories, gloating in whole plains littered with dead bodies and cities burned completely to the ground. The emperor, emperor Shalomazar III is well known for depicting torture, dismantling, and decapitations of enemies and grisly details on large stone of relief panels. So this man is making a shrine of all the gory and violence that his kingdom has done. After capturing their enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm, leaving the other arm and hand so they can shake the victim's hand in mockery as they were dying. These are the Ninevites. This is where Jonah has to go, okay? And that's not it. They forced friend and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. Saints, this is absolutely perverted. This is disgusting. These are evil, wicked, violent people. Not only that, they pulled out prisoners' tongues, stretched their bodies with ropes so they can be flayed alive and their skins displayed on the city walls and they burned kids alive. And on top of that, they were a terrorist threat to the northern Israel throughout the lifetime of Jonah. So where do you want me to go again? Who do you want me to go to? And what do you want me to say to them? And why? And why? Anyone here taking that trip? I'll go for Jonah. Nope. Absolutely not. Our first thought is they deserve judgment. And now, why are we even waiting? Why is there even a message? Why are we even warning them? Right? All of a sudden, our, our, our righteous indignation rose when we heard that. Right? We're like, oh, no, they got to go. How did God allow that this long? Right? So what you're saying is, send me to Nazi Germany to extend a warning to Hitler, 
right? Send me to Hamas. Let me, let me warn them that God might be gracious to them if they repent. There can't be anything good from this. This is straight up scandalous. I can't do that. How can you ask me to do that? So you want me to go to our enemies, preach repentance. I don't think so. They're flat out, although we didn't say it, they're not worthy of your mercy. They're not worthy to have a chance to repent. I don't want to do that. Problem, how do we reconcile God's divine judgment with his divine mercy? How can God both be just and merciful? How can God both be judge and forgive? How can God both condemn and give grace? One answer, one word, and one person. It's Jesus. Amen? Why? Because at the cross, the full indignation and wrath and justice of God was poured out on Jesus Christ, the righteous. So let me give you that in perspective. We're talking about all the sin from the beginning of creation, starting with Adam. Well, starting with Eve, sorry. But Adam, we're going to go right after, okay? Adam got the credit, but we know what happened, okay? Ladies, we know what happened, all right? So starting with Adam, <clears throat> all the way through us, all the way to the end of time, every sin that was ever committed, we're talking about thoughts, actions, everything, you name it. In three hours, Christ satisfied the full wrath of God over sin. That's how righteous Jesus is. Amen? In fact, when, when Romans talks about this grace abounding, where, where sin abound, grace abound that much more, the word is overflow, is that God is, is completely rich in mercy, that he has this overflow amount. It's on tap. Why? Because that's who he is, right? God says of himself in, in Exodus 34, he says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, abounding in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, keeping mercy for thousands, but by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father's children to the third and fourth generation. And so the question that he's struggling with is how is God both just and merciful at the same time? The Bible says that Jesus is both the just and the justifier of the one who believes in him. And as Paul said, via the Holy Spirit, consider both the goodness and severity of God. Saints, Christ was condemned for us in our place so that we may live for him. Peter actually calls it scandalous. He says, the just for the unjust to bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. We see remnants of this all the way through in the Old Testament. May we not miss this. Saints, the rest of the verse two says this, why wickedness has come up before me. Saints, nothing is hidden from God. It, it's very illogical for us to think that we can get away with things. It's very illogical for us to think that God will not judge and take care of all wrong that is done. He says their wickedness, the things I explained to you guys, that whole list of things, 
It said it's come up, like it's ascended into God's heart and he's grieved over it. It reminds you of Sodom and Gomorrah. It says the wickedness has rose up. The city has rose up to me and I'm gonna judge it. I have to. Why? Because God is just too loving to allow people to destroy themselves and others. It's not that he's just this self-righteous person on the throne and just, it just desires to destroy. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible actually says he does not delight in the death of the wicked, but that they may turn from their ways and live. But if not, he's too loving to allow them to destroy themselves and others. Now, God both sees the wickedness of the Ninevites, but he also sees the hardness of Jonah's heart. Now, I mentioned much of their practices and wickedness before. However, why would God send a warning to them unless there is a chance of the judgment being averted? Jonah knew that. Jonah knew if I'm going to send them warning, you're not just going to judge them, then they might have a chance of repenting. And I know you're going to be merciful. The very command to cry out against it was one of rebuke. And it was actually a call for repentance. Now by show of hands and just being honest, the word of the Lord comes to you in the days of Hitler. You want to Nazi Germany? Some of us might, okay? But a lot of us are not. Let's just be real. At least in our flesh immediately, right? I may need to pray and fast on that one, right? Somebody may need to come rebuke me so I can go, right? So check me on my hardness of heart. But most of us are not volunteering for that ministry, right? How about Hamas right now? Go over there, just, just kindly go to them, walk in their door, right? Greet them, hi, I'm the love of Jesus. We're not doing that. It doesn't seem logical. It doesn't even make sense. And verse three says this, but Jonah, right? So God spoke, okay? He came to Jonah. He spoke, go to Nineveh, cry against it for their wickedness. It's come up before me. And Jonah arose and went straight to Nineveh. No? Oh, you guys are reading your Bibles. Praise God. Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Saints, he arose and literally fled in the opposite direction as far as the earth would allow him, okay? He went down to about 25 miles of Joppa, south to the board of the ship and Tarshish is believed to be literally on the outermost western rim of the world known to the Israelites at that time. So he literally went to the end of the earth from the presence of the Lord. Okay, think about that. So he didn't arise to obey. He arose to rebel and literally went the opposite direction as far as he possibly could. I'm out. See you later. Right? Now, why? Okay, why? Here's the reason. He absolutely hated the Assyrians from the bottom of his heart, from the soles of his feet to the top of his head, he absolutely hated the Assyrians. He hated the Ninevites, 100%. He had no problem delivering a message to Israel, but his heart was apathetic and callous towards the Assyrians. His hatred was so deep that he basically resigned, resigned as God's messenger. 
Yeah, I'm okay. It's my last day being a prophet. I'm done. Imagine that. Yeah, I'm no longer a Christian anymore. If you're asking me to go preach a message to them, I'm good. I resign. Here's my papers. Okay? I signed it. Accept it. Right? But he didn't even give God a chance. He was out immediately as far as he can go. Now, saints, there is a danger of loving one's people more than God. I think we can fall into that. We love our people. Oh, we love Israel. Oh, we love the church. But saints, if we really, really, really love God's people truly, then you must obey God fully. Amen? If we really, really love God truly, then we must obey God fully. Why? Because God is good. And everything he does is good. And everything he says is good. The Bible says God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So if he tells you to go to Hamas, if he tells you to go to Hitler or Nineveh, guess what? The next question would be, how am I getting there? Amen? Not to flee. Saints, this is the first symptom of a hardened heart. Now, how does something become hardened or callous? And so I started lifting weights at about 13 years old. I was in eighth grade and I began to play football. So as I'm lifting weights and doing that, you're, you're handling very uh, rough material, iron usually. And as you begin to lift heavier weights, depending on what you're doing, uh, your hands begin to grow a thick layer of skin on them, okay? We call those calluses, okay? Men should have them, women should not, all right, okay? So what happens is as they begin to get really, really callous because you continuously lift the weight and it pretty much peels off your skin, right? And so the thick layer develops so that it doesn't peel off your skin, right? You do it over and over and over and over and over. And then that thick layer builds. And guess what? You can no longer feel right there on your hands. Well, guess what does that to us? It's called sin, right? In Hebrews 3.13, it says, exhort one another daily, lest you be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And so what happens with Jonah is over and over and over, he began to become hardened towards the Assyrians. Instead of praying for them, he began to judge them. Instead of having a soft heart towards them, he began to measure his holiness by their wickedness. Israel's Babel, we're not that bad, right? You guys remember Habakkuk? Them, the Babylonians, right? But the Israelites are doing the exact same thing. Offering kids in the fire, worshiping false idols, exact same thing, even worse. But Habakkuk couldn't see that. But at least Habakkuk questioned God. Jonah ran from God, right? Why? Because he had a callous heart. Saints, this is the starch reality of the heart of the Jews and Israel back then and the religious leaders in, in Jesus' time. They despised other nations, such as the Gentiles. And in Jesus' day, they tried to prevent them from entering in. Remember, they would condemn Jesus. He eats with them? Tax collectors? Them? Right? You could just see their facial expressions. The way that they spoke about Jesus when he showed his radical love for the outcasts and the disenfranchised and the marginalized, right? They, they had so many things to say. Why? Because we're the chosen people. God only loves us. God only has a heart for us. When we have that type of attitude, there's no way you can be sensitive 
to the heart of God regarding the gospel. Saints, who and what people group are we apathetic to? It's been said, you have, if you have no concern for those who are lost, then you yourself are not saved and you can be sure of it. Now, I wouldn't, that's extreme. And I wouldn't say that's always necessarily true. But at the same time is, when we're apathetic for people who are lost, day in and day out, we just pass people all day. People, we start to measure again our holiness by their wickedness. And then we then think that the standard of God, the measurement of my holiness is how far I am above my neighbor instead of how close I am to the Savior, then that really shows where our heart truly is. There's a saying, and it says this, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Amen? So what that means, when you go to the cross, there's no looking to the left or the right. Everybody's on the same plane, right? Doesn't matter what social class you're from, right? Doesn't matter what family you come from, what job you have, your success or your failures. Like there's no, there's no hill, there's no incline or decline. The, the foot of the cross is level, amen? Everyone needs it equally and desperately, and no one gets to God but through his son, amen? And this is the issue Jonah is wrestling with. He is struggling with this reality. Saints on your outline, first symptom, you rebel against God's word and command for the great commission. When is the last time you actually shared the good news? Who's at church? I, yeah, it's intramural, right? We're all the same team here. But um, when's the last time we actually had a conversation with someone and was sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading to speak life into them, right? Or do we figure, ah, oh, they probably don't, they don't want to hear it. Nah, they probably don't, you know, right? That, that is not Phariseeism. See, Phariseeism came in the New Testament. It's really Jonahism, all right? It's being like Jonah, self-righteous, right? Have you ever secretly celebrated the destruction of others instead of praying for them? We do it. Oh, shame on them, right? Oh, they're going to get their judgment. That's us, right? That's us. And then something happens, boom, I knew it was coming about time, right? Saints, we should not be celebrating anyone's destruction, right? We should be praying for a softened heart, whatever God needs to do for them to turn and repent. When they came and they ridiculed Jesus over and over and over for healing on the Sabbath day and doing this and doing that, you know what he said? You forgot the scroll of Hosea where he says, I delight in mercy, not sacrifice, right? I delight to show grace and mercy. He said, why don't you go learn what that means? Well, Jonah, why don't you go learn what that means? Saints, why don't we go learn what that means? And lastly, a point number one, saints, you begin to measure your holiness by other people's sins. It just helps me to just simply remember is that one sin, one, the wages of sin is death, okay? It doesn't matter if you miss the mark by a centimeter, right? Or a light year, okay? It doesn't matter how far you miss the mark, you've missed it, right? Therefore, you are subject of God's wrath, right? That is deserving. That's actually what we deserve. But the Bible says, but God, who's rich in mercy. So it keeps me humble to recognize, you know what? I've probably got to be the most wicked, filthy sinner that I know because I know my own thoughts. I don't know anyone else's. And I'd be embarrassed and shamed if my thoughts were out in the open. 
but I'm grateful for the mercy and grace that God has upon me when I can lay my thoughts at the altar and the sacrifice of Christ, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Amen? So review of point number one, you begin to rebel against God's word and the command for the great commission. Point number two, uh, 3B, you go to great lengths to escape the presence of God. And so part two of the verse, it says, first it says, but Jonah arose in, to flee to Tarshish. And then it says, key, from the presence of the Lord. And then at the end of the verse, it says again, from the presence of the Lord. He went down, found a ship, and paid the fare. So we discussed why Jonah rose up to flee. And we see that actually in chapter four, why? Instead of obeying God. The next symptom we see is that you go in great lengths to hide from the presence of God. One says we know that in the presence of God is conviction. He's holy, right? He's holy. Guess what else conviction is? Around the people of God, right? I don't want to be around them. I haven't read my Bible in a while. I was over, fell back into my pet sin. If I go to church, people might look at me strange, even though we won't, right? Even though we won't. Or I just tell my kids, they, say, they look at me and say, well, why? They, you wouldn't know they were looking at you if you weren't looking at them. So don't look at anybody when you come, right? But <laughs> come to church, we were not going to look at you strange, Okay. It's just the paranoia, right? We, we fall into that. They're going to look at me, right? And then you start to see that you're going to great links, illogical links at time to escape the presence of God. Now, reality is, can anyone even escape the presence of God? Is that possible? It's, it's asinine. This is actually illogical and flat out stupid. Saints, May this be a lesson to us not to act out of sheer emotion, impulses, or circumstances, okay? A lot of us, our first response is, how do I feel, right? So Jonah's like, there can't possibly any, be any good in that, so there's no good in it, and I'm out. Instead of trusting God's character, right? So we see Jonah responding out of his emotions and his circumstance, Am I the only one in here who struggles with that? Are, are there some real people in here that are going to say, yeah, yeah, I get you, right? We all fall victim to that, right? I tell people when I teach high schoolers and elementary kids, I tell them, look, your emotions are real, but they're more like a smoke alarm, okay? They go off to alert you to investigate. Investigate means pray, right? So I feel a certain way. I don't go call 911 when my smoke alarm goes off. You guys don't do that, do you? Okay, good. Praise God. You don't call. What do you do? You look. Okay, did I burn something on the pot? I mean, would I leave something over here, right? And then, okay, you figure it out, right? But you don't go call 911. Jonah calls 911 and he's out. There's an emergency. I'm gone, right? Jonah does not want to obey this command. Okay, those of you who take notes, Psalm 139, 7 through 10 says this, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, meaning the sun rays, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Saints, you simply cannot escape the presence of God. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. That's why you, he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Saints, Jonah even paid the fare. 
Seems simple, right? Nope. God will not fund that which he did not command. Amen? See, some of us think, oh, we can use God's resources to go against God's will. Nope. Okay? If it's God's will, it's God's bill, right? But if it's not God's will, that's your bill, okay? That's on you, all right? So Jonah pays the fare, but spiritually, saints, nobody plays on Satan's playground for free. You know that, right? No, no, nobody jumps on Satan's roller coaster for free. Nobody goes to his fairgrounds for free. There's always a price to pay for rebellion. Always. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. The Bible says he who sows iniquity reaps sorrow. And Galatians, Paul makes it very clear. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. What a man sows, he shall reap. Amen? There's always a price to pay, saints. Jonah, in his impulses and in his circumstances and in his declining spiritual condition, paid the fare to disobey God. Saints, think about a time where you actually went out of your way and worked harder to disobey God than you would have just to obey God. Amen, somebody? Okay? I know it's silent in the church house. But sometimes we go to great lengths to disobey God when it would have just been easier and cheaper to just obey God, right? This happens, saints, because we're in a spiraling, downward spiritual condition. What happens is the person who's at the feet of Jesus early in the morning, I, I would recommend, by the way, the one who doesn't seek him early rarely finds him throughout the day. So early in the morning is a good, good time. The one that's at his feet early in the morning, throughout the day, in his word, in fellowship, serving about his business, rarely finds himself here, himself or herself, rarely. I have not. Now, again, I'm still kind of a baby in the ministry, okay? I have not in the small amount of years that I've been a pastor. I have not met the person who's been what I just said and spiritually declining, okay? Because here's the reality. Our spiritual walk with the Lord is like riding a bike uphill. If you stop, you're done, okay? You're done. That bike, whoop, all the way back down where you started, okay? So if you're not progressively, it's not the grease flow one. I don't know about that one, right? But if you're riding a bike uphill, you got to keep pedaling, okay? As soon as you stop pedaling, as soon as you stop early morning devotion, okay? Sitting at his feet. As soon as you stop meditating on the word of God, like the psalmist, he said like you're a fruitful vine in the water, right? Living water. As soon as you stop fellowshipping with other believers, okay? As soon as, as soon as the Lord stops being your delight, and as soon as you stop serving, that bike stops pedaling, amen? And down the hill you go, right? And you don't have anyone to catch you because you're not in fellowship, right? Two better than one, right? And then you end up like this. I've had seasons of my life where I've been like this, and when I've done the analysis, oh, early morning, gone. Word, gone. Fellowship, gone. Ministry, gone. Service, gone. Oh boy, it's a slow drift. It's a slow drift. So saints, let this be a warning to us. What are we willing to sacrifice in order to obey God versus what we're willing to sacrifice in order to rebel? Oh boy. What are we willing to sacrifice in order to obey God versus what we're willing to sacrifice in order to rebel? Saints, the things of the world are not inherently bad. He gave us these things 
for us to enjoy, right? But as soon as they become more important, and as soon as we become more invested in the things of the world, then they become an idol for us. And make no mistake, God is God all by himself. Idolatry does not take from him, it takes from you. Because we're created in the image of God to worship God in spirit and truth. And whenever you worship anything less than what you were created to worship or anything less than God, you automatically degrade yourself. Amen? And the rest goes downhill from there. I remember when my daughter, my oldest daughter, used to play club soccer. And that was like a season where, glad we're not doing that anymore. Our Saturdays were done, okay? Done. But there was a season where she was doing both like club track and club soccer. And I remember the coach would say, hey, we have, and I, I made it very clear, check it out. Okay, oh man, the Lord, I don't do Sunday morning sports because I go to church, I take my family to church, we're at church. It's not happening. And he's like, please, and he begged me. And I said, absolutely not. You know what he did? Change the schedule. He said, okay, well, we'll do it Sunday. We can come like four or five. I said, I can do that, right? But the reality is I'm not going to offer on the altar, right? The kingdom for the culture, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to even alter the kingdom for my hobbies, right? There's a reason why, and one of the greatest sermons we have recorded in Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount, one of the summations is, therefore, seek ye first the kingdom, right? And his righteousness. And then everything else seems to find its proper order, right? The old saying, if you hit the head, the rest falls in position. Amen and amen. Saints, people pay hundreds and thousands of dollars for games and hobbies, but probably can't sacrifice one hour to help somebody move. Amen, right? When these things are happening, it is a warning sign to us to examine our hearts before God. Where are we? So review symptom number two. Symptom number two is you go to great lengths to escape the presence of God. You begin to surround yourself with non-believers and become irritated by the things of God. You make sacrifices to participate in worldly activities, but then you make excuses for why you're not serving, going to church, praying for, and with your family. Saints, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't be deceived. Jonah goes on this ship with a bunch of pagans, right? He flees from the presence of God. He would have been, God would have been with him in Nineveh, but he decided to go from the presence of God and be with pagans anyway. So you see that? You could have had God with you in that, but you fleed from God and now you're still with pagans. And that's ultimately what happens, saints. Down is the only direction when rebelling against God. Amen? Point number three, symptom of a hardened, callous heart. You become numb to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Oh, none of us have ever been there, right? We hear his voice loud and clear. Yikes, no, we have been here. I've been there, right? Where you don't hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit anymore, where you've continuously done the same thing over and over, where you say, no, Lord, I don't wanna hear that. Some of us will even take substances so we can numb the feeling of the Holy Spirit. That is just another symptom that our hearts are callous and hardened. Verse four in your Bible says this, but the Lord, I love that, saints, I gotta stop right there, but the Lord. So verse three ends with him going down to the ship from the presence of the Lord. And then verse four starts with, but the Lord, right? 
sent a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. So saints, everything we can say about Jonah right now, we could probably say about ourselves at some point in time, right? But notice God still relentlessly pursues him. Notice God doesn't say, all right, have it your way. Good luck. He relentlessly pursues him and God intervenes. But the Lord sends this mighty tempest. The God who controls the wind and the seas and everything in nature, sadly, everything obeys God except his servants. And at this point, except Jonah. Saints, it's been said that God never lets his children sin successfully. Have you noticed you can never sin your way out of things? Right? It just doesn't work. You're, you're, you know, you're a failure at sinning. We all are. Right? We, don't, we, we, we do it good, but we fail really good when we do that. Right? But saints, God never allows us to sin successfully. Right? Because he loves us so, so much. Notice how now God is speaking to Jonah. Before it says that God spoke to Jonah and he gave him the word. Now God is speaking through him through creation. He's speaking to him through the sea and the wind, right? So while Jonah went to great lengths to avoid the presence of God, God is going to great lengths to still speak to Jonah. Notice the two are not the same, right? The two are not the same. We change, we're fickle, we're up and down. But the Lord remains the same today, yesterday, and forever. And you can count on that. And we can take that to eternity. That if he loved me yesterday, he's going to love me today. But guess what? He's also going to bring swift discipline when I need it. Amen? St. Jonah right now is numb to the voice of God. This is how a heart becomes callous and hardened. It's sin. After rebelling against God over and over and over, we grieve the Holy Spirit, and we can no longer hear God's voice. But then God speaks to us differently, and it's called calamity. It's called tribulation. It's called affliction, the furnace of affliction, right? Because what happens is it gets so much to the point where we're deaf, numb, and dull, and we need to be woken up. Amen? We need to be awake. We are spiritually asleep. We are numb to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now, for those of you who are not familiar, the Holy Spirit is a person, okay? Not a it, not a thing, not a force, not an idea, right? The Holy Spirit is an actual person. He is the third person of the triune God. The Holy Spirit is the only person here on earth of the Godhead. Christ is on the throne, and we know the Father's in heaven as well. But the Holy Spirit lives inside us as believers, and actually empowers us to live a holy life before God. Paul said it best. He says, I no longer live, Christ lives in me, right? I love what Corey Tim Boone says. She says, the secret is not me in a different set of circumstances. It's Christ in me, amen? The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Oh, how we can use that when we're going through these perilous times, amen? So Jonah was asleep spiritually, and we will see in a few verses, he was asleep physically as well. Saints, this also is a picture of the nation of Israel, is that they had blinders on their eyes. They were rebelling against Almighty God, and they actually forgot God's original covenant with Abraham. What was the original covenant? 
through you, it was just one nation would be blessed, or through you, all nations would be blessed. They had grown self-righteous. They had grown callous. And they forgot the original plan was for all nations to be blessed. And God wanted to use them. God wanted to use Jonah. And God wants to use you. And God wants to use me. Saints, he was hardened against the voice. Israel was hardened against the voice as well. And thus shaken up by the nations. And eventually they were swallowed up by Assyria and Babylon. And eventually Jonah's going to be swallowed up by a whale. So you see the parallels. There's many parallels with Jonah and Israel. And then Christ fulfilling that completely on what Jonah should have done. Christ comes and fulfills that completely. So saints, you become spiritually asleep and immune to your surroundings. And here's what verse five says. Then the mariners, which simply means sailors, were afraid. And every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down, third time mentioned down, into the lowest parts of the ship, laid down and was fast asleep. <laughs> Jonah is KO'd. He's knocked out. He's asleep. There's basically an earthquake on the ship and Jonah is knocked out asleep. And the Hebrew wording in there tells us that it was actually spiritually. We believe he was physically asleep, but it was more spiritually asleep. Saints, when we have callous and hardened hearts, we are simply not aware of the spiritual battle that is around us. Oftentimes, recently, speaking to a brother in Christ who's married and going through trials in marriage, right? Welcome, welcome to real life. That's what happens. Notice in the Bible, Satan didn't show up till there's marriage, right? Okay. So marriage is off, off. Satan loves to attack marriages, right? And speaking to this brother in Christ, and he was just like, man, I don't know what's going on. Like, I tried my best. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And I just simple question. So did you guys pray in the morning? What? What, what, what does that have to do with anything? Right? Well, let's rewind. Let's rewind. Okay, let's rewind. Let's go back to our early morning devotion, right? Prayer time at his feet. Simply, it just, it seemed like I was speaking a foreign language to him. To pray? To read my Bible? To do those things? Why? Because you're asleep. You're asleep. The Bible says, awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. When you get down to this point of spiraling, you're grieving the Holy Spirit, that voice you can no longer hear. You're now blind to the things that are going on around you. Saints, look at the different responses. These pagan Phoenicians all have their own little pagan God, right? They're shook up the way Jonah should have been shook up, the way Jonah should have been. They're trying their best to empty out the shit. They're trying their best to lighten the load, right? They have works that are going with their fear. They're lifting everything out and they're actually praying to their false gods, okay? And then Jonah, he sleep. The only one who knew the true and living God, the only one who actually could have prayed for something to happen was asleep. He was KO'd. He was knocked out. He was snoring. Saints, is that us? Sleep to the propaganda around, to what our kids are watching and listening to, social media, who they're hanging around with, sleep in our marriages at home, 
sleep at our jobs, lost people all around us. Are we just asleep? Are we aware? Are we woke spiritually, right? This is Jonah. Paul says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Jonah was dead to the voice of God, to the will of God, and to the way of God. May this be a warning to us. Wake up. Now, God uses the pagans to wake him up. Verse 6, so that the captain came to him and said, what do you mean, O sleeper? Arise, call on your God, you idiot. Well, he didn't say that, right? Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. But seriously, imagine, you know they're like, something's wrong with him. Something's wrong. The ship is basically about to explode. Now, these are sailors. They're always on the water, and they're afraid. And they're doing everything that they can to solve the problem. They pray to their God, they throw stuff off, and then they realize there's one, more, there's one more dude on this boat and he's sleeping, there's something wrong with him. We're about to find out, right? So they go and you can imagine like, wake up. What is wrong with you? Call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Saints, these pagan pagans whom are an object of God's love, Jonah was their, the God of Jonah was their only hope. Saints, where you are sometimes, you might be the only person that will actually pray for them. Do you know how many people? Imagine, so there's about 8.5 billion people in the world. And I want you to imagine this. Do you know how many people that nobody's praying for? Think about it. That no one is praying for. And God put you somewhere specifically to be a lamppost, to shine light. And imagine if those people we're depending on you to do exactly what you were called to do, and you're asleep. Awake, O sleeper. So he comes to Jonah, again, God's mercy to use these non-Israelites, and they petition Jonah to wake up and call on his God. Clearly, their gods are dead. Clearly, their gods are like uh, the prophets of Baal, right? They were calling on their God, right? Elijah comes through, bold and courageous, Right? How long will you falter between two opinions? If Baal is God, worship him. If God is God, then worship him. And they start calling on these false gods all night. And then, and then Elijah, you know, a little bit of humor, he starts clowning them. Like, is your God busy? Like, you know what I mean? Is he on the other line? Like, what's going on? Like, is he going to the restroom? Is he going potty? Like, what's up? Right? And then Elijah calls him the true and living God, and fire comes down and consumes the altar. Right? They're kind of hoping that something like that's going to happen with Jonah. They're kind of hoping that this guy who was sleeping is awake now, and maybe his God can save us. So they petition Jonah, wake up. They recognize that although Jonah is asleep and unbothered about what's going on around him, God still uses them to wake him up. Saints, I think it's a tragedy that when non-believers, God has to use non-believers to wake us up. When God has to use non-believers, hey, I thought you said you were a Christian. Hey, I, I don't know much about the Bible, but I thought God was love, right? God will use non-believers to wake us up. And praise God for that, but it is a shame, right? But again, it just goes to show to God's unending character of his mercy 
and his love to draw us back to himself. We serve the true and living God. In every area the Lord has you, you are God's ambassador. You are the token of hope to the lost world. Not you, but Christ in you. May we be awake, available, and useful. Review point number three, symptom to a hardened heart. You become numb to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You continue in this downward spiral of rebellion. Point number four, speed it up. You negatively impact those that are around you. You're a stumbling block instead of salt and light, and you'd rather die spiritually and suffer harm than do the will of God. Verse seven says this. And then they said to one another, come let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Bum, 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 bum. You, it is your fault. Verse eight, then they said to him, please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew. He's probably wiping his eyes, right? I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So Jonah, I appreciate your honesty. It's a little too late, right? Jonah's honest. But you can imagine he probably says it's very dry, not with much enthusiasm. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God, right, who made heaven and earth and the dry land. Okay, he could probably get us out of this, but I'm not going towards him, okay? That's probably Jonah, right? So Jonah's rebellion impacted more than just him. Saints, we serve a loving God, but he loves us enough to discipline us lovingly. However, our sin doesn't just impact us. The saying goes this, it may be my sin, but our consequences. How many times do we see people sin and then there's a wave of effect of people who are caught in the whirlwind, okay? Let's use David, for example. It's one of my favorite examples. Not because of what he did, but because of God's mercy, right? But David, who was spiritually callous and hardened, said, you know what? I'm not gonna go out to war anymore. I think I'm solid, right? What is he doing? Great lengths to avoid the presence of God, the will of God, right? He does that. And then he goes to see this woman bathing and says, you know what? I'm a taker. Doesn't say who it is. He says, you know, David, yo, that's, that's Uriah's wife. Bring her to me anyway. Okay, numb to the conviction of the Holy Spirit now, right? So what does he do? He goes down and goes and gets her. Then, instead of repenting, he covers it up, right? Because this is this downward spiral, right, of rebellion and hardness of heart and sin. Like, we see this pattern. And then that happens. And then he tries to cover it up with murder, okay? And then for almost a year, probably about a year, he lives in that broken state until the prophet Nathan comes. And he tells him all these things. And he basically tells him like, look, you're the man. Tells him this parable. David rises in anger because he's judging his holiness by other people's sin. And he's like, that person needs to die. He's like, yo, you're the man. Like, that's you. David's heart is broken and contrite. Okay, that's where we get Psalm 32, Psalm 51 from. But saints, it didn't end there the consequences. So one, baby dies. Okay? The baby dies. That's one. Two, the sword never left David's house. So what happens is David has children. One by the name of Absalom. Another by the name of Tamar. Another by the name of Ammon. 
Ammon rapes Tamar. Absalom kills Ammon. Absalom then tries to take the throne from David. Joab then kills Absalom. Then Adonijah tries to take the throne from David. And then later, Solomon kills Adonijah. My sin, but our consequences. Saints, it's a downward spiral. It doesn't just impact you. It impacts everyone around, right? And while you can very well take your vending machine of sins that you can sin from, okay? You can put it in. You can pay the price. You can do all that, right? But you cannot choose the consequences. And you cannot choose who they affect. Amen? And this is Jonah. Saints, we are called to be salt and light to a world, to our families. Jonah's negatively impacting those around him, and he doesn't even care. So question is this. Who's becoming more like Jesus as a result of being around you? Think about that. Who is becoming more like Jesus? Because they've been around you and Jesus is living his life through you, right? We were called to be salt and light. Israel was called to be a light to the nations. The church is called to bring the light to the nations, right? But how are we doing? Because it starts with us as individuals, although we represent a bigger scope, the church. Jonah represented a bigger scope, Israel, right? Almost out of time, so I'm at the beeline through these. Saints, when we get to the point that we'd rather suffer spiritual harm than do the will of God, then something drastic must happen to get our attention. David's son had to die to get his attention. May that not be us. So I'm just going to read these, and then if I'm up here again, we'll finish them. Verse 10 says this, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more temptuous. So they were ready like, Jonah, we're gonna have our way with you, okay? But what shall we do? How do we solve this problem? And, he's, and then he said to them, why don't you take me to Nineveh so I can repent and do God's will? Didn't happen. It didn't happen. He said, just pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. You know what? That is an easy way out, saints. Just kill me, right? And some of us, sadly, have bought the lie of the enemy. Hey, you know what? Life would be better if you weren't here. Hey, you know what? It's easier just to die than to do the will of God. It's a lie, it's a lie from the pits of hell. God wants to use your life. He desires to use people. He desires to work through you for you to use the gifts and callings that you have. Jonah's suicidal. Jonah wants to die. Then do the will of God. He doesn't care who's affected by it. And that's another thing, saints. If you do that, what about the people who care for you? Do you care about how they'll be impacted? Do you care about how you'll represent the light of Christ to people? If you just give up and take the easy way out? Saints, I know we struggle. I know we go through things. I know there's some of us in here who go through deep, deep sorrow, deep, deep pain. 
I know that. But the answer is not to end it. The answer is to turn to the Lord. The answer is to lay it at his feet. The answer is to come, all of you are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The answer is Jesus. No matter what you're going through, no matter how hard you think it's going to be, the answer is Jesus. And so next time I'll finish, the last point will be, sadly, the non-believer's testimony begins to look better than yours. And we'll finish next time. Worship team, come on up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace, oh Lord. We thank you for all these lessons um, in the book of Jonah that we see, Lord, that kind of looks like us sometimes. But Lord, I love the fact that after Jonah fled from your presence, the next verse says, and then the Lord. We thank you, Lord, for never taking your hand off of us. We thank you, Lord, for never taking your hand off our loved ones. We thank you, Lord, for your consistent, constant revelation of yourself and your love towards sinners. We thank you, Lord, that all of our stories start with, but God, who's rich in mercy by the love in which you loved us. While we were dead in our trespasses, you make us alive. And it is by grace that we have been saved. And Lord, if there's anyone in here who is hardened and callous and is entertaining the lies of the enemy that they're not worthy, that they are useless, that God does not love them, that they should just end it, that they should just flee from the presence of the Lord, that they should flee from the fellowship, that they should just give up. I pray you comfort them right now, oh God. I pray that they would feel the comfort of your never-ending love and that they would be persuaded as Paul was in Romans 8 where he says that I am persuaded that neither death nor life, angels, powers, nor principalities, things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. We love you, Lord, and we love because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray.